The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens, honor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary." Give to the Lord, O family of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. All right. We are in Deuteronomy 4. It's verses 15 through 24. It's entitled, The Form of the Lord. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of any thing that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not cross over the Jordan, but you shall cross over and possess that good land. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The day I typed this sermon is the day that Florida was removed from lockdown status. Remember that? Seems like eons ago, doesn't it? Now they want to do it again. In the morning, I posted my usual sunrise photo, a really beautiful sky, by the way, and I made a comment on it saying, Florida is off lockdown. If you're still stuck at home, be adventurous. Get in your car and come on down. 
The weather is here. We wish you were beautiful. Join us at the beach. I was thoroughly amazed at the number of negative comments that came in. People horrified that we were freed from the bondage we had been in and what an unwise decision it was to do this. Others cautiously said, be careful, Charlie, be safe, as if I was now going to change my daily routine from what it had been. But the fact is, I never changed it, even a bit from before the lockdown, and so there was nothing to change back to. There are all types of bondage in the world. There is forced bondage, and there is incarceration, there is self-imposed bondage, and so on. And within these are countless subdivisions. But the word bondage always signifies not free. Why would anyone want to continue in the bondage of fear of a virus which proved as undeadly as a mild flu or bondage to a government that salivated at the chance of taking away the freedoms of its people? It is hard to figure. But this was what was evident to me on the morning of 4 May 2020. Our text verse comes from Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Paul very well may have been thinking of this passage that we're looking at right now from Deuteronomy when he wrote these words to those at Rome. He speaks of bondage, adoption, and an inheritance. These things are found in today's passage as well, and it is certain that they did not come through the law of Moses. This is seen again in today's verses as well. Moses repeats that he will not cross over the Jordan and into the inheritance. As Paul shows in Romans 8, the law has no part in the inheritance. Only coming to Christ is what makes that possible. These verses today will also close out our chiasm, which began in verse 325. That truth is seen laid out quite clearly in it. I'm only going to read you the first and the last part of the chiasm, Deuteronomy 3:25 through 4:22. It's entitled, Call Upon Him. This is for Israel's instruction. Verse 325 said, Moses wants to cross the Jordan. Verse 422 says Moses must not cross over the Jordan. Where are you placing your trust? In self-imposed bondage? In a government which can't balance its own budget? In a bottle of Clorox and a face mask? What is it that will make you safe and keep you that way? The answer is Jesus Christ. The law was given to lead us to him. Therefore, use the law wisely, not as bondage leading to death, but as a tutor to lead you into the loving arms of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is an invaluable lesson which is found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is out of the iron furnace. It's verses 15 through 19. Verse 15, take careful heed to yourselves. This is a new section of Deuteronomy 4, which builds upon what Moses has already expressed. First, in verse 4 9, he said to the people, Only take heed to yourself and keep yourself exceedingly. When he said that, it was in the second person singular. Moses was speaking to each individual which made up the collective whole. Thus, he was speaking to Israel collectively. 
Now he says, And take heed exceedingly to yourselves. The words are in the second person plural. He is speaking to all the people collectively. The first stressed personal responsibility leading to national acceptability. The second stresses national responsibility, which is derived from the obedience of all people. Moses is ensuring that the nation understands that it cannot blame the individuals for failing, and he is ensuring that the individuals cannot blame a national failure for their own failings. To get this, imagine a family where the father is arrested. They are in a culture that looks to family responsibility in a collective manner. He cannot say, my family is out of control, and so it's their fault. And if the whole family is arrested, they cannot say, it is dad's fault because he is out of control. Moses tells all of Israel that they are to take heed, individually and as a nation. If this is not the case, breakdown in society is inevitable. This is the very reason for these words coming in Deuteronomy 17. If there is found among you within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, that's individual going astray, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman, the collective has to take action, who has committed that wicked thing, and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. That subject matter from chapter 17 is exactly what Moses has spoken about and what he will again speak about now. The contents of what he says ahead are new, even if parts of it are substantially a repeat of what he just said in verse 12. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. Some of that repetition begins with the next words. Verse 15 going on, for you saw no form. Lo reitem kautemuna. No saw you any likeness. Of these words, Adam Clark incorrectly states the following. Howsoever God chose to appear or manifest himself, he took care never to assume any describable form. He would have no image worship because he is a spirit, and they who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. These outward things tend to draw the mind out of itself and diffuse it on sensible, if not sensual, objects. And thus spiritual worship is prevented and the Holy Ghost grieved. Persons acting in this way can never know much of the religion of the heart. Christians worship Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is God. Not only this, but God is pleased when we worship him. Jesus says this explicitly in John 5.23 and John 12.26. Paul confirms it, saying the following, Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Further, Moses has already recorded that the Lord did appear in a form, in the likeness of a man. That is actually first recorded in Genesis chapter 3, where it says that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. 
If the Lord God walked, he had feet. The implication is that there was a form. This is seen again in Genesis chapter 18. Then the Lord, Jehovah, the Lord, appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, Adonai, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. These and other manifestations of the Lord, meaning the eternal Christ, had already been revealed to the people through Moses' words. We can even think of Exodus 24 where Moses and the leaders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel, meaning the Lord at that time. However, when the law was given at Sinai, the Lord set about to impress upon the people's minds that the Lord extends beyond mere human form and indeed beyond any form. Because this is so, no image can fully represent him. This is why Isaiah wrote these words to the same people who were so prone to going astray in their hearts. Here's what he says from Isaiah 44. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man. According to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house he cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. For he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied and even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire and the rest of it he makes into a God, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my God. People who say that worshiping the Lord Jesus is idolatry, make the fundamental mistake that the Jews made and then have passed on for 2,000 years. God had already revealed himself in human form since the very beginning of man's time on earth and throughout the times of the Old Testament. Not only is that clear, but the worship of him in this form already has precedent. Abraham clearly called the Lord as such, saying Adonai, or my Lord, meaning Jehovah, and he bowed himself to the ground before him. Joshua will, in the very near future, worship this same person from Joshua 5. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot. Remember Moses at the burning bush? It's the only other time. One is in a non-physical manifestation. The second is in a visible physical manifestation, meaning a man for the place where you stand is holy. The Lord was making a theological point by those two appearances. A similar incident will occur again in Judges 6 with Gideon and the Lord, and again in Judges 13 with the parents of Samson. 
Some of the prophets will have visual manifestations of the Lord appear to them as well. Just yesterday, Sergio sent me an email and he asked, is this speaking of the Lord when Isaiah has the vision of Adonai lifted high in the train of his robe filled the temple? And I said, it has to be because God is spirit. As we talked about in the prophecy update, there is no parallax in God. And so it has to be a manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, the unseen God has clearly chosen to reveal himself in a person, even before the coming of Jesus, and yet it was Christ the Lord who came to them. What is being revealed to Israel now is a lesson concerning idolatry, but it is not to be, nor can it be considered as idolatry to worship the man who is the Lord. No form then signifies no thing which man can create or devise which could failingly resemble the Lord God, as we saw from Isaiah a moment ago in Isaiah 44. An image of a man cannot reveal anything beyond itself, whereas Jesus can. It is he who reveals the unseen God to us. Israel needed tutoring before that could happen. And so God gave no form or likeness when he spoke out the law there at Mount Sinai, which here in Deuteronomy is called Mount Horeb. Moses repeats that now for Israel's instruction. That instruction came, verse 15 continues, when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb. Rather than when, the Hebrew says Bayom, in the day. In other words, it was one day and one day only that the Lord so spoke to Israel. After that, Moses stood between them, receiving the Lord's word and passing it back on to the people. Verse 15 going on, out of the midst of the fire. Again, this was seen in verse 12. The Lord was demonstrating his holy nature and that he alone was to be served and worshiped. Thus, speaking out of the fire was a deliberate note to Israel that his word is one of judgment. For a violation of it, the expectation was to be that of punishment. The lesson of the voice is that of worship, properly directed worship. There is nothing that man can imagine or produce that is or ever could be a substitute for God. If this is so, then making something, be it a household idol or an artificial intelligence computer or any other thing in creation, it cannot suffice to represent God. Therefore, no such thing was to be made and then bowed down to. To do so is to pervert the lesson of the voice. It is to diminish the glory of God, and it is to diminish the value of the person who so commits such a crime. That is revealed in Moses' next words, verse 16, lest you act corruptly. The Lord is holy, and he demands holiness in his people. To act corruptly is to act in an unholy manner. This was unbefitting of a person who had been redeemed by the Lord and who was considered one of the people of the Lord. But further, this corruption extends in another way. To make an image of God is to make it out of something which is corruptible. I don't care what it is. If it's a part of creation, it is corruptible. But God is incorruptible. Therefore, there is an infinite disparity between the two. It equates something worthless with that which cannot be valued. Moses next defines how this could come about, beginning with verse 16 going on, and make for yourselves a carved image. A portion of the chiasm which has spanned the verses of our last few sermons begins to be defined right here. In 4, 3 and 4, there was an example of apostasy, meaning idolatry, and in 4, 15 through 18, 
There is a warning of apostasy, meaning idolatry. In verses 4, 3, and 4, Moses referred to the idolatry of the people. It was an example of apostasy for the people to remember. The incident concerning Peor is found in Numbers 25. The men of Israel were enticed by the women of Moab. They fell into harlotry with them, and they then fell into idol worship with their gods. Moses reminded them of this in order to warn them of it now. One cannot call on the Lord the central thought of that chiasm if his mind, heart, or eyes are focused on a God which is no God at all. No form was seen at Horeb, and therefore no pesel or carved image of any form was to be made. But again, because we are slow to learn, we can, and indeed we should, consider the Lord Jesus in our every prayer. To do so is not idolatry. He is the incarnate word of God. He is our mediator between this physical world of people and the unseen God. Because God has revealed himself to us in this way, it would not only be inappropriate to worship God apart from Jesus, it would be an affront to him. As Jesus said, all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The difference between that which man has made and the body which God prepared for Christ is infinite in scope. Until Israel learns this, they must remain under this law which forbids any image to be made or worshipped. Moses further defines this as, verse 16 continues, in the form of any figure. Temunat kal samel, form of any figure. Moses introduces a new word here, samel. It signifies to resemble, and thus it is a figure or an image. It is a word which will only be seen again in 2 Chronicles 33, twice, and Ezekiel chapter 8, twice. The powerful significance of this word will be seen before we end today. For now, Moses speaks on, verse 16 continues, the likeness of male or female. Tavnit zakar o nekeva, pattern after male or female. This explains what was just said, the form of any figure. The word tavnit or pattern comes from the word bana, meaning to build. Nothing was to be constructed into such a form. The Hebrew words signify the form of the sexes. Thus, it includes the male and female form. Though not stated, this clause certainly speaks of a human, man, or woman. The Lord has already, in the books of Moses, revealed himself in such a way. And so the Lord is making a complete distinction between what he has done and what man can do. The unseen voice reveals no form for Israel to emulate. Logically, this cannot mean that Israel could not worship the man who is the Lord. This is evident because, as we saw a moment ago, Joshua will do the same exact thing in about a month's time from the time that Moses speaks. The words hinge on the thought that one is God's revelation of himself, while the other is man's attempt at creating a God in his own image and calling it the Lord. Next, Moses continues, verse 17, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth. Tavnit kal asher ba'aretz pattern after any beast which is on the earth. The words of this clause and the next take us back to Genesis 1, verse 1. It is God who created those things, and thus they are not God's. Further, they are things God has purposed for the benefit of man. For man to worship and serve them is not only to deny the Creator, but it is to turn upside down the order of his creation by exalting over man 
that which was made for man's enjoyment and benefit. This is what the Egyptians had done. But the Lord had brought judgment on those and all the other false gods of Egypt. Verse 17 continues, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air. This again returns to Genesis chapter 1. In fact, the word oof or flies hasn't been seen since then. It also takes the reader back to Israel's time in Egypt, where birds such as the ibis and the falcon were worshipped. These or any bird of wing were not to be patterned into an idol. And Moses continues, verse 18, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. Moses rounds out the list of Genesis 1 of created species, but which had become objects of worship throughout Egypt. They worshipped both creeping animals like the scarab beetle and the fish goddess Hatnet, along with many other such creatures. In the Genesis account, the creation of the living beings is in a different order. There, the creatures are noted in order of creation, fish, bird, beast, creepy, and then man. Here, it appears Moses is ordering them in the likeliness of them being worshipped. Man, beast, bird, creepy, and then fish. But it is noted that all categories were worshipped in Egypt, from Pharaoh the man all the way down to the crocodile and everything in between. Israel is strictly forbidden from fashioning any such image in order to set it up and to worship it. However, there's more that was worshipped in Egypt and that is also worshipped in the land of Canaan where Israel was heading. And so Moses begins a new category of such things. Verse 19, and take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven, upentisa and echa hashemaima, and lest you lift your eyes to the heaven. Heaven is singular. It is where God is seen to dwell, such as in Genesis 28, 12, where Jacob saw a ladder set up on the earth and which reached to heaven. The Lord stood above the top of the ladder. They are words of caution. This is something that everyone does. We all look to the sky, both in day and in night, but Moses warns that trouble could be lurking in our minds when doing so. In other words, what he will warn about does not indicate anything wrong with what is up there, but how we treat what is up there. Verse 19 continues, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars. This is something that most people do every time that they go out. They look up and check things out. The sun and how its light dances around, the moon and how it bathes the night in a soft glow, and the stars which capture our imagination for a multitude of reasons. Indeed, they are each a part of, verse 19 continues, all the host of heaven. All the hosts of the heavens, plural. Here, the singular heaven of the previous clause is now rendered in the plural. The Lord is in heaven, but these things are the host of the heavens. They are created things as are the heavens, just as was explicitly stated in Genesis 1. As they are created, they are not gods, but are rather things which exist and are sustained by his direction and power. But man has devised many schemes in his imaginings. Verse 19 going on, you feel driven to worship them and serve them. Here is a new word to scripture, nadach. It means to impel, compel, be led, driven away, and so on. There is a force which moves something, and that force here is to impel a person to do what is against the proper order expected by God. 
Here, the verb is reflexive, meaning you allow yourselves to be drawn away. Man's own mind moves him from the proper worship of the Creator to the improper worship of the creation. Verse 19 continues, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Asher halak Yehovah Elohecha otam lecho ha'amim tahat kal hashemayim, which divided Yehovah your God to all the peoples under all the heavens. It is at first a fascinating and perplexing statement. Scholars argue over what is meant. Some saying that God has divided the other nations, allowing them to worship these bodies, but Israel was to worship only the Lord. That is a rather perverse way of looking at this. I disagree with those scholars. Cambridge lessens the force of that and says it is an interesting attempt by the writer, because they deny that it's Moses, to reconcile his great truth that Jehovah is God alone with the fact that the other nations worship other gods. As justification for that, they cite Deuteronomy 29, verse 26, which speaks of Israel doing exactly this. There it says, For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods they did not know, and that he had not given to them. But this is an error in thinking. The Lord did not give these things to Israel or anyone else as gods. The verse says that the Lord has divided these heavenly bodies to all the peoples under the whole heavens. It is inclusive of Israel. What Moses is saying is that no nation can claim any or all of these heavenly bodies as its own. The same sun that shines on Shiloh, Israel, also shines on Wang Chung, China. Egypt claimed the sun god Ra as their own, but it is not a god. It is the sun and the Lord has divided it among all the peoples of the earth. These things were never intended to be objects of worship. This is evident because the sun is found over Japan at one time, but over England at another. The same is true with the moon and the stars. The heavens, being plural, means any and every view of the sky by man at any point in time. At one time, a part of the people enjoys one aspect of them. At another, others do. If these were gods, they would always be present. Thus the Lord has divided them among the peoples because he is the creator of them and the one who appoints their seasons. Therefore, the evident truth is that the Lord gave these, as is recorded in Genesis chapter 1, to serve man, not that they should be served by men. Man was the anticipated guest. Guess what? Day one, day two, Day three, day four, day five, everything was put together. And then on day six, what happened? He created man. We were the anticipated guest in this universe. All of these things, the animals, birds, creeping things, fish, and the host of the heavens were all created before man was. And man was created to worship and serve the Lord God. Do not worship anything but me alone, says your God. In doing this, you will do well. I will keep you safe on this earthly path you trod and will open to you heaven instead of opening hell. I am the Lord your God, so you are to worship only me, and I will lead you in paths of righteousness for my name's sake. I will guide you each step, watching over you tenderly. If you will follow me, may this be the path that you take. 
Forget the idols of the nations, which are only vanity. Don't bow down to the heavenly host and you will do well. Don't allow yourself to be pulled into idolatrous insanity and I will open to you heaven instead of opening hell. Our second thought today is a jealous God. It's verses 20 through 24. Verse 20, but the Lord has taken you. Ve'etchem lachach Yehovah. It is emphatic. And you has taken Yehovah. Egypt pictures bondage to sin. They were caught up in worshiping and serving everything Moses just mentioned, all of it. But the Lord brought them out of that. Verse 20 continues, and brought you out of the iron furnace. These words are unfortunately taken completely out of their intended context by many scholars. This is not saying that Israel was forced to work in iron furnaces. It is also not speaking of any other forced labor that Israel suffered under. It is certainly true that those things literally happened, but the context is that of idolatry. Moses said that the Lord spoke to the people at Horeb from the fire. Iron represents strength, be it in binding together, in government, in hard service, in bondage, and so on. But iron can go into a furnace, which is now a new word in the Bible, kur. It signifies a pot or a furnace, something dug out in order to form a place for smelting. It is kin to the word kur, found only in Leviticus 11.35. It is a place of divine testing and purification. In an iron furnace, the strength of iron is removed and cohesion is lost through the heat of the fire. In idolatry, there is no cohesion and strength of worship towards God. Rather, there is a purposeless state of futility. This iron furnace is next described as, verse 20 going on, out of Egypt. Egypt, or double distress, is the iron furnace. Being brought out of that implies that the iron can be shaped and strengthened by the Lord for his purposes. This is exactingly seen in Isaiah 48, verse 10, where the word kur, or furnace, is noted. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. The Lord sent Israel to Egypt to be tested and refined. The purpose of this was because Israel was, verse 20 going on, to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. Israel was morally prepared in Egypt to be a people who were to know the difference between idolatry and true worship. This selection was typologically given to prefigure the church, meaning the people of God in Christ, be they Jew or Gentile. Paul states this in Ephesians chapter 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of, here it is, his inheritance in the saints. Verse 21, furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes. And Jehovah was angry with me for your words. This is the third time that Moses has substantially repeated this. It's your fault, but he's blaming me, basically. However, each time Moses has changed the wording concerning why. The first time in Deuteronomy 137, he used the word galal, or rule. The Lord was angry with Moses because the words of the people rolled back on him. 
The second time in Deuteronomy 3.26, the word ma'an, meaning intent or purpose, was used. It was the Lord's purpose that Moses, picturing the law, would not cross the Jordan. Now, for the third time, he says it is because of the people's words that he cannot enter. It again looks to Christ. How does one enter into the promise? Is it by faith displayed in words, or is it by deeds of the law? The words of the people kept them out of the inheritance. They didn't believe, and their words reflected that. Remember that? What was it, Numbers 13, when all the people rebelled, and in Numbers 14, they were sentenced. You're not going into the land now. You're going back into the wilderness to die. Now the people's words will be words not of law, but of faith. The law cannot bring the people into the inheritance. Only the word of faith can do so. Romans 10. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I don't care if you're in the Old Testament or not. It is all about Jesus Christ. Everything is all pointing to him. Verse 21 continues, And swore that I would not cross over the Jordan, and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is not recorded anywhere else. But it is a statement of fact, relayed by Moses, and which points directly to the consequences of being led by the law and not by following Christ through faith. Moses led the people, the people failed to believe, thus indicting Moses for failure to lead the people. And so the Lord swore that he would not enter. There's nothing unfair about this. If a president fails to lead his people properly, All of you should think of Jimmy Carter and his famous malaise speech accompanied by a malaise administration. There are consequences for that failure. It may have been, and it certainly was, an indictment upon the people by the Lord, but it was also a failure of Moses to inspire them to words of faith because the law is not of faith, but of deeds. This is the truth which Moses presents to the people, and the consequences of that are once again stated by him, verse 22, but I must die in this land. Ki anochi met hazot, for I die in the land, the this. Translations using the word but, as this one does, reduce the impact of the clause. It is a statement of fact, an affirmation that Moses is to die outside of that promise. The symbolism is absolutely clear. The Lord swore that Moses would not enter, for he is to die in the land outside of the inheritance. The law died when Christ died. Those under law will die with the law. Those who died to the law with Christ will live with Christ. They will cross over. As for Moses, meaning the law, verse 22 continues, I must not cross over the Jordan. One is either under the law and outside of the promise, or one dies to the law and crosses over the Jordan, the descender, meaning Christ. This same thought has been stated at least seven jillion times, or close to that. The emphasis on this cannot be overstated. The law can bring no one into the inheritance. We talked about that in Galatians this Thursday. We're going to be talking about it in Galatians until we finish that book on Thursday nights. The law cannot bring anyone into the inheritance. However, verse 22 continues, but you shall cross over and possess that good land. Ve'atem obarim ve'rishtem. 
and you shall cross over and inherit. With the law dead, the people can enter. One plus one will always equal two in proper theology. As long as one is under the law, there is no inheritance. When the law dies, the inheritance is possible. The law died in Christ, and therefore only in Christ can one cross over to possess the good land the Lord has in store for his people. Verse 23, take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. The words are words of law, but of what time frame is Moses speaking of? Obviously, he is speaking of the time after having crossed the Jordan. It is speaking of the nation of Israel under the law. It is not a typological picture of Christ. The covenant was cut, and the people were to pay heed to it. Despite the typology Moses is fulfilling in his death east of Canaan, there is the continued existence of Israel under the law, which must be lived out in order to give the world an understanding of its need for grace. Does everybody understand what I just said? We have pictures of Christ, and then we have the reality that the people of Israel are going to go into Canaan, and they will be under the law. We have typology, and we have actual, and he is talking about actual right now. That covenant and its many laws and prohibitions says further, verse 23 continues, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. Here, the Hebrew actually says, which the Lord your God has commanded you. This is referring to the negative command of Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. These words of Exodus 20 are then immediately followed by exactly the same thought. Moses begins that now. Verse 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Ki Yehovah Elohecha esh okelah. For Yehovah your God fire consuming. The symbolism of this was seen by the people in Exodus 24. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. The appearance of the Lord's glory was a representation of the Lord's character and being. It was to impress upon the people that what they saw was reflective of who the Lord is. And more than just this outward display reflecting his nature, also comes the final terrifying words of today's passage. Verse 24 finishes with a jealous God. Who el Kanah? He, God, jealous. It is an emphatic statement which describes his very character. After giving the commandments concerning idolatry, the Lord said this in Exodus 20, For I... The Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God is jealous. The word is kana. This doesn't indicate jealousy of success in another. Rather, it speaks of a defense of his honor and his glory. When one bows to another God, the Lord isn't jealous of that false God receiving worship. His jealousy is directed to the violation of depriving him what he is justly due. As he says in Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory. I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images. This is the fourth use of this adjective, kana. It will only be used two more times, both in Deuteronomy, and it is always used in relation to the Lord. 
As I said in verse 16, however, the word introduced at that time, semel, is one used only four more times. It is seen in 2 Chronicles 33, where Manasseh, king of Israel, set up an image in the house of the Lord. Imagine that. Because of that and the other things Manasseh did, the Lord said he would no longer forgive Israel. Thus he thrust them from his presence. But the word is also used in Ezekiel 8. There it says this, He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair. Then his spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north. And there, north of the altar gate, was the image of jealousy in the entrance. The image erected at the temple is called the image of jealousy. The Lord was deprived his rightful worship because of this image. And the consequences of this and the other violations of the law which are outlined there resulted in the death for those who followed those practices. Though we are under grace, it is of note that John closes out his first epistle with these words, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Idolatry is no less serious under the new covenant, even if its consequences in this life are not as terrifying. But the same Lord, whose name is Jealous, rules over us today. His hand of grace upon our lives does not negate his jealous nature when we worship other gods. One thing we must do then is to ensure that our hearts are always directed to him and that we are not swayed away from a close walk with him because of those things which are temporary, corruptible, and which have no value in the life we have been called to live. Let us carefully evaluate our lives from day to day and let us endeavor to always put the Lord Jesus Christ first. With this, the Lord our God will be pleased. And as the trial of the coronavirus lockdown is hopefully behind us because they're trying to resurrect it, let us remember to not walk in this life with a spirit of fear. The Lord has ordained our days. He has set them before the moment we were conceived, and our worries and our anxieties will not change that one iota. Israel saw no form of the Lord because they were to focus on the Lord and on nothing else. We have something far better. What is the form of the Lord? It is the form of a man, our Savior, Jesus. Paul says as much right in 2 Corinthians, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, he is the Lord, the eternal God. Let us entrust our souls to him, be confident and encouraged in him, and be a light to others, both in how to conduct our lives properly and in how to bear up in a positive way during those times which bring fear to the hearts of men. May they see our lives and say, I want what they have. I want Jesus to the glory of God the Father. The point of what we're seeing today, once again, like I said, it's at least seven jillion times, one or two less or more, but at least seven jillion, I would say, that the Lord is trying to show us that the law can save nobody. Nobody. Moses, picturing the law, must die outside of the promise. You have the Jordan, the symbology we've looked at many times. We're going to look at it many more times. You've got Mount Hermon covered in white, a picture of heaven. 
The Jordan River rushes down from Hermon. It goes down through Israel. And on the way down there, there's a stop at one point. I'm not going to talk about that today, but there's a stop and then it starts again. And then it goes all the way down to the Dead Sea. Christ came out of heaven. He rushed through life. He stopped at one point. He went down to the Dead Sea. And then what happens at the Dead Sea? All of that water evaporates and it goes right back up into the cycle and back up to Hermon. And that's the picture. Yarden means the descender. It's a picture of Christ descending. And these people are going to cross over the descender and into the promise, picturing life in Christ going into the promise of heaven, which is restored, which God promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, and which we have been anticipating for all of that time. 6,000 years of human history so far, and we're waiting for it to come about. And it's going to happen. One of these days, we're going to be snatched out of here, and the world's going to go into its final seven years of tribulation. But if you have not called on Jesus, if you have not believed in your heart that God sent him to the cross of Calvary to pay your sin debt, and that he raised him again to prove it, you will not be a part of that. You must believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And when you are saved, it is eternal. You cannot lose it. God says in Ephesians 1 that when you believe, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is a promise, a guarantee of our redemption. God doesn't make mistakes. If he sealed you and then took that away, God made a mistake. And that's not the God of the Bible. There's no parallax in God. There's no change in God. When he does something, the decree is eternal. Please call on Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God through his precious shed blood. The law will die to you because the law died in Christ. It was nailed to the cross, and you will come out on the other side forever purified through him. Please do it today. Our closing verse comes from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Next week is Deuteronomy 4, it's verses 25 through 31, something to do always as on this earth you trod. It's entitled, Seek the Lord your God. That'll be our 16th Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I got a very short uh, poem for you. I, could, I just realized I didn't think of a question to ask you. Let me think of something really quickly that I can stump you on. Um, let's see here. Okay, you read the 95th Psalm. The people were, that were here earlier, the 95th Psalm is quoted in what book of the Bible? No, no, quoted in the New Testament. Quoted in the New Testament. James? No, right before James. The 58th book of the Bible. It begins with H and ends with Hebrews. Anybody? Okay, he talks about it in detail. Nobody got a Maserati today, so I'm going to be spinning around town in this baby. I didn't think of a question. I mean, it just dawned on me right now. Anyway, here we go. This is entitled, The Form of the Lord. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form, nothing visible to admire, when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image, yes, even of a whale, in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or female. 
the likeness of any animal that is on the earth or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. No, don't you dare. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of the heavens, you feel driven to worship them and to serve them, even the planet Mars, which has given the Lord your God to all the peoples as a heritage under the whole heaven, wherever man does trod. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, a place not bright and gay, out of Egypt to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan. For me, there is no such chance. And that I would not enter the good land, which the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not cross over the Jordan. Thus I was made to understand. But you shall cross over and possess that good land. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you to do. For the Lord your God, please give me an understanding nod, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful lesson. Thank you for this marvelous journey that you're taking us on, tutoring us for our need to come to Jesus Christ and to be saved. And thank you for the typological pictures that are given that are so clear, that are so evident that all we need to do is think about them and we can see the law is not the place to put our trust. Instead, we are to put our trust in Jesus Christ and to forsake the deeds of the law in order to be honoring to you. He did what we could not do and when we tried to do that too, then we are a disgrace and we disgrace the cross of Calvary that Christ went to. Help us not to have that attitude, but to trust fully in the grace of Christ alone. May it be so in our lives, and may it be to your honor and glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.